Greetings, future fossils, and welcome to episode 170 of the podcast that explores our place in time. This week, I am delighted to share with you the third appearance on Future Fossils of my friend Michael Jacobs, a.k.a. the ungoogleable Michelangelo, host of the podcast Self-Portraits as Other People, musical alter ego Void Denizen, actor, psychedelic artist, all-around great guy, the only person outside of my immediate family who has managed to get my two-year-old daughter to stop crying. And of all the people I know, he is probably the most virtuosic and playful with the English language, in spite of the complete superfluity of this guy's creativity and intelligence and talent. Michelangelo is an extremely humble guy and a total joy to spend time with. He came out to Santa Fe recently on a kind of soul-searching road trip and spent a few days with me and my family and a few days up at my friend Mitch Mignano's place in creative isolation in the Cerritos Hills. And uh, we played a little amateur hour tennis while he was in town. And I think this conversation lives somewhere at the intersection of all of those things. Future Fossils roams pretty far as far as topics are concerned, and it's grown a lot in the five years since it launched. But every once in a rare while, I have a discussion that truly exemplifies the spirit in which this podcast was born, the enthusiasm that pervaded it before I started worrying about defining these investigations. And this week's episode is a true return to form. Michelangelo and I talk about pretty much everything, including plenty of things I honestly can't believe that I so freely discussed in public. I guess sitting on a bed together to record the first in-person podcast in over a year and a half leads to a kind of therapist's couch intimacy, as well as the trials and tribulations of being an unemployed actor during covid in LA and his escape to return to a, a nomadic lifestyle following his intuition on a pilgrimage through the American Southwest, communing with the landscape. We also talk about non-duality and artistry and memory and transpersonal somatics and their implications, the yin-yang of improv and composition, Star Trek, the construction of alter egos as a creative tool, music we love, time travel, shedding our civilized human layers and returning to a wordless communion with place, transhumanism, UFOs. I mean, it really was one of these conversations that seems to touch on just about everything. And I'm delighted that I get to share it with you. But first... I want to give a shout out to the patrons of Future Fossils podcast that have stuck with me through the turbulence of the last couple of years. The folks who believe in the value of the show and have chipped in however much they could each month to make this show's continued existence possible. As well as the new patrons, Linus Schauer, Daniel O'Donnell, and Frank Olson. 
I do have a short list of affiliate links for products I personally endorse in the show notes to this episode. You might be interested in that, but that brings in basically nothing. This show is entirely listener supported, and that is how I want it to stay. And for those who don't hear the days of work that go into every episode, it occurs to me that I I should probably mention that each one of these gets somewhere on the order of a thousand time cuts to make these conversations as legible and richly nutritious as I possibly can, a practice I have poured myself into like a monk since starting this show in 2016. And a practice that, honestly, I call into question every time I listen to one of the other podcasts I love that doesn't bother to edit at all. And I find myself asking why it is I insist on the highest possible production quality (laughs) for this show. I honestly don't know if it's worth continuing to do this. So I welcome your feedback. My contact information is in the show notes. I stand here just weeks away from becoming a father to my second child, and I have been up until three in the morning pretty much every night for the last six weeks, working, getting up at seven, eight in the morning. So I'd love to hear from you about the future of this show and how I can make it worth as much as possible to you and to everyone else listening, where I could be working smarter rather than harder, and what else besides the two extra episodes a month, the book club, the early exclusive access to new music and writing and art that I've been putting out on Patreon. Everybody's value system has been shaken up over the last year, and it would be great to hear back and just know where you place your value now and how Future Fossils can continue to serve as the vehicle for the encouragement and promotion of those values. Speaking of which, this Sunday, July 11th, I will host a live recording with author Eric Wargo about his latest book, Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. Eric is one of this show's most popular and impactful guests, and we talk quite a bit about his research into the nonlinearity of time in this episode. If you're interested in joining us for that, you're still time to sign up at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thank you. Um, you know the rest of it. Review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps immensely. And if you want to hear the entire conversation quite a bit of this late night armchair philosophy and soul bearing has been removed from this episode for time, clarity, and sanity. Uh, But you can find that on Patreon as well. Thanks for listening. I love you. Hope that's not too weird. But you know, we're here to stretch the envelope of acceptable weirdness in a good way. Thanks and enjoy.
Hello again. Hey. <laughs> hey. We're still here again. Yeah, we're here. I want to talk to you about you rediscovering the American road. Yeah. Because let's timestamp this. You know, this is, there's like a rubber band effect that people are like, it's the, re the great reopening. Let's go on a road trip. That's what people used to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so here you are and the tables have turned. Like the whole time I've known you, you've been very connected to place, to your life in the city. And I was the one sort of ambling about randomly. And now here I am like in a house and you are on a kind of like shamanic adventure through the American Southwest. <laughs> and, you know, that just feels very appropriate. Everyone gets their turn. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just not merely for lecherous, vicarious, sort of retro romantic kind of reasons, but out of genuine curiosity for the way that you are experiencing whichever other end of this seesaw you're yeah. on, you know? No, it's it's been really interesting in that sense because I think for the last, like, Basically, all through my 20s, I was very nomadic and free-flowing, and I was kind of like I shunned responsibility as much as I could. I liked to be in the passenger seat while somebody else was driving, you know, and like I liked to kind of be the cat in the hat and, and show up at different people's places and kind of like, you know, uh, wave the trickster wand and just like stir up where things were Another stuck Mike, and things Mike, like that. Mike Myers, the cat in the hat. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like a moment for uh, t 10 seconds of thinking of all the Michaels you know. <laughs> That's going to be a staple in, in future fossils from I now on. I just never thought of the cat in the hat as like a, a Michaelic yeah. entity until he's, now, but it makes sense. He's a, he's a stranger passing through town, and he, he comes in and he, you know, he stirs things up a little bit, but ultimately for good, right? Because it settles back into place in a better way. Well, there's like an enantiodromia thing going on there where he's he's helping, but they're like, you're fucking everything up and they team up against him. Like Alan Watts specifically describes that. You know, if you're like the villain in the sense of like you're a force of unwanted transformation and then people unite against you in, in fraternity and like... Yeah. yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, let's, it's this... Uh... Settle the chaos! Settle the chaos! So I feel like I, I, I moved through that space and then my 30s came around and i i needed a place to settle in and i ended up in the convent in san francisco living with like 23 a revolving cast of like 23 roommates and that was like kind of a perfect perch because it gave me the center but everything still was in motion except now i had a solid space but the chaos was still rearranging around me you know and then, uh, you know, L.A. for the last five years was just like hustle and dreaming and scheming and draining the dream and just like rusting shut in ways and just like feeling like it, everything was becoming really myopic. And then COVID comes I, around and it's just like, oh, yeah, you think that's myopic? Let's turn it up to 11, you know? You're not the only person I know that got stuck in covid with an a wall roommate yeah i mean that that element too like um my roommate who was a stem cell research scientist who then right before the pandemic hit got a job as a virus engineer so it was just like it was like a ridiculous kind of 
uh, arrangement and then their lab moved and him and his girlfriend moved in together and I ended up having to find a roommate and not being able to find a roommate and spending like a few months just in like pure isolation and it was you know the the industry in LA everything is shut down so there's really I, no reason to be there even and then my father who has Alzheimer's in Florida we usually bring in uh, somebody from the Netherlands. Like every three months, he gets a different person to, you know, cook for him and keep him company and make sure that everything is, you know, a trip sitter, basically. Is it because he's losing his English language or? No, he's, he still has. I don't really know why. I think it's mostly because my sister has like a large network in the Netherlands. She's kind of like a Dutch celebrity. So she was able to, she's able to find people to bring over there. Like, you know, she can kind of vet them and then. But then, you know, COVID happens and the borders closed and it was like things became really difficult. And so we kind of combined those prompts and I gave up my apartment in L.A., stored everything. And my cat and I went to Florida and I looked after my dad for about eight months. And my cat passed away in January, which was another like huge hit that I'm still working through because that's my familiar, you know, it's like a super deep bond. Damn, I've been hanging out with you all week, and I somehow that didn't come up. Yeah, well, there, I, I there don't. It is. I don't try to bring it up all the time. You know, I don't want to be the guy whose cat died, and you just won't shut up about it. I was it, seriously, but. I was so afraid of asking you about dealing with your dad with Alzheimer's, and here yeah. the whole time there was. The, oh, it was like another element because my cat was about a year and a half ago. She got really sick, and I ended up like three grand in vet debt fixing oh, her up. Fuck. So on top of that, like before COVID hit, I was already in this myopic place where I was like in debt, nothing was moving, you know, like uh, career wise or, you know, I was still, I stay creative, but it was just like the hustle of just trying to sustain, you know, like expensive rent and all this stuff. And then my cat, like that whole thing coming in, but we, we basically, we got her back up and running and I took her to Florida with me. And then around September, she like started acting up again it was mostly her kidneys but now there was also like thyroid issues and a heart murmur so tried to fix the one thing and then we got the one thing but the other thing got worse and it was like back and forth i wrote this whole thing on my patreon it's like it's actually in a public post because it's the meowsoleum it's where you can read her story because there were like mythic elements in that as well that the person the doctor that i was working with the vet his name was Dr. Basta. So I was like, the irony is just like, it's just crazy. Like, Basta, done. But here's the thing. Like, when she passed, like, when he he um, put her to rest, and as I was writing this all down, it hit me that it's not Basta, like, done. But he's Egyptian. It's Bast. It's the cat goddess. Oh, that's funny, because that's the first place I went. That's yeah. exactly what I thought. And he's were... actually, uh, Dr. Basta was, is Egyptian. So it like hit me on this whole nother level. Like she was delivered by like this ambassador of the cat goddess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did, and you see this in the, in the Mausoleum piece as well. I like went to the beach and I, I was just grieving in this poetic landscape of the beach, you know, like the, the pelicans flying over and casting their shadows on these tourist like people sitting there under their colorful parasols, looking at their iPhones while there's this prehistoric landscape that's just like, the epiphany like the the embodiment of of grief and of grieving it's just like tides rolling in and pulling away just like emotional waves and then i just this thing came over me where my hands just started moving the sand and it started making this effigy so this like cat-shaped sand sculpture 
and then there was this cloud that showed up that became this perfect like tiger-like cat angel and it was just like this this moment of like psychic resonance of like loss and then seeing how the mind compensates for that in the elemental landscape and start shaping that so you know i came from this uh, this caretaker of like I'm taking care of my father who has Alzheimer's. I'm taking care of my ailing cat and then the cat passes away and it's, you know, the, the, the space changes. And after eight months of being there, I was like just aching to be reborn, you know, into the world. And I didn't really know where to go. Like the feeling of home has slipped in so many ways, you know, like the fact that my father has Alzheimer's notwithstanding, like that's also, um, we've been talking a little bit, you and I, about like the importance of like your biography well, there's something that's, it's like really hard to describe, but when the person that's known you your whole life, when you are edited out of their memory, like he doesn't know that I'm his son. We figured this out like 10 days into being there that he just thought I was another caretaker and that there's like another Michael or something. So we've been trying to like reconcile that. And finally, it's like this sense of, yeah, he 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 knows because we've told him, you know, sort of thing. So it's like, I'm like, written out of that history which is like really bizarre and i could even tie that into my journey to la which was the journey of coming from this socially supported ego in this artist collective in san francisco at large you know and telling myself like okay well what if i shed this support system like what will remain of me in a new place and then in la like signing up to be nobody, like to be like an extra, a dead soldier in Westworld, whatever yeah. it is. And it's been this gradual breaking down and, and disassembling of myself to becoming nobody, like almost in like a Zen sense, except it's not peaceful necessarily, <laughs> you know, there was like a lot of chaos that came with it. And then, well, that's and the, then that's the, the phase boundary though, right? It's not the, that's just what it takes to get there. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, the shedding is not necessarily pleasant. But then... No, it's, it, but it's a humbling, you know? It's like, and it is ultimately, I guess, what I asked for. I should have been more specific, I guess. Uh, but yeah, like getting to that point where even there, it's like, okay, now I am, even in my biological, the biological hard drive that is my father is now like <laughs> erasing that part of me that I identify with. And I like go, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to the pawn shop. I used to work at here and see if there's anybody there. I remember. And I get there and it's like all new people. And I like tell some stories and they're just kind of like got this okay boomer (laughs) look on their faces. And I'm like, Oh wow. I don't exist in the memory of this place anymore either. So it's really this like breakdown of self of home. Actually, I've been that person at work where, this place is 37 and I'm 37 and there are people that were there in the eighties and nineties that like, I don't know who they are. I just know that they're talking to some of the older people I do know, or like when the first exchange I ever had with Stuart brand, who is famously obsessed with longevity, memory, continuity, you know, anchoring the, plenitude for the future of civilization, 10,000 year clocks, etc. Um, the first conversation I had with him was to get some information about an architectural extension that was made on the campus back in the nineties when he was on the board. And the first thing he said to me was like, you should know that that's something that I did. He's like, I was, I was the one that designed that whole extension. And like, I was on the board for 14 years. Did you know that? Like, 
it was one of those things where I was like, you know, yeah. it's, the, these institutions are designed for high turnover. Yeah. You know, that's like a feature. It's like part of what ostensibly keeps them creative. But like, I wonder about that because as an improv artist, and I've noticed this in my own experimental looping stuff, but I've also noticed it in other looping acts like Yodo that are also themselves fully improvisational. And like, it doesn't matter how talented you are. And like, yes, sometimes you deviate and you like wander off into the, but I really do think that I'm, I'm like, I'm finally getting to that point in the last few years of my life where I'm like, I guess a grown up because I understand that like, if you just quote unquote improvise all the time, then what you're actually doing is like defaulting to something that's not capable uh, on some level of architecting something over a longer time scale. So like you may just end up improvising the same shit over and over. Right. I mean, it's kind of why improv comedy can be so irksome. I think is because it lacks the, there's nothing at stake in the longer term. Like it'd be interesting if whose line is it anyway? has been going for 20 years and they've been building a story for 20 years. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like that would have been like a whole nother kind of game. Right. Or, you know, I know you love, oh my God, I'm so glad I get to talk about this. Star Trek Next Generation episode, The Inner Light. Yeah, exactly. My you know, one. and I know I'm not the only person in the world who thinks that even if the show was in the, the 80s and 90s, like, my God, how can you walk away from a storyline like that how dare you even write a storyline like that where someone has like such a profound life-changing experience and then like you know it's an episodic never reference it again yeah Yeah. just you're never gonna bring it up again cards playing his goddamn flute again oh yeah wonder what that's about there was the one episode where he meets he has a romance and he tells her about it oh there was there was one episode where they brought it back and it it was so wonderful and cathartic and yeah, you were just it's like an emotional you, seeding moment you, you know? know fuck thank you for acknowledging this because yeah. you look emotionally dead for every other episode by not acknowledging yeah. it for not weaving it into a story and you know anyway i feel like i'm on a huge tangent from <laughs> like michelangelo goes on a road trip yeah i haven't even hit the road yet come yeah. on <laughs> i haven't even gotten to answering your question um so yeah so at the at the end of that epoch of just like being being caretaker Michael's son, you know, like I have to remind him I'm caretaker, but also Michael's son. It was time to like kind of find myself again in my own context and go back to the West Coast. But I'm like, where am I going to go? Like, I don't know where I'm being drawn. And the only place that came up really was Arizona because one of my good friends uh, and often collaborators, uh, Jeff Cravath, amazing artist and he's putting out an album very soon which is also amazing which we'll probably end up talking about more in context he had a place that he moved into with his girlfriend and he was like hey why don't you come hang out here for a little bit and i was like well that sounds nice you know like arrive get my car make it over there and um it's been it's been first of all it was like the feeling of like going somewhere like being in a car and going somewhere and then also like being with like friends was like already like a very exciting prospect. And then getting there and like arriving in this house in the Arizona desert, you know, that's already like there's magic there. And then it starts happening because one of the things in your question was that you've always known me as being tied to place and that I'm interpreting it differently than you said it. But I, what I've really learned is that one of my modes of operation is 
to find the genius loci of a place. The oh, no, that's how spirit. I meant it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely mean whether you're sitting still or... Or yeah. moving like emphasis on sitting still there but definitely yeah. like well yeah but like in, a, in, in a city it's there are moving parts and there are things to get to know but a lot of it is man-made you know but there's always my first love has always been immersing myself in nature like when i was a kid i would just like wake up at 4 a.m and i'd go out by the by the wood line as the sun was rising with my camera and watch the deer come out in the mist and, and photograph that and just like immerse myself in this kind of naturalistic landscape. And then like for a long time, I was like just living in cities and like being in the desert. I started really like I, I was doing it in Florida, too, when I'd walk around the golf course, which is like the circle that you walk every day because that's what you can do for, you know, in Aventura, Florida. But yeah, like walking around this golf course. I started, you know, like I do, I used to do my thing called stain spotting where I'd find like these peridolic stains on the sidewalk and outline them with chalk. And now I was starting to see, you know, these, these dryadic faces coming out of the trees and I just take a photograph of it, import it into my iPad, which I got last year, which changed everything. And then I can just like embellish it to bring these shapes to the foreground more. So as I'm walking around this golf course, I keep like finding new ones, you know? And then I really wanted to, like, when I first arrived, I wanted to leave some artwork, like little mini prints tacked to trees, you know? I was making these pandemic-related mask drawings, people with masks, and then it had these little poetic lines, like, who are you behind the mask of your civility? Like, what beast lurks behind the mask of your civility? Who are you behind the mask of your humility sort of thing? What hubris hides behind the mask of your humility? What beast resides behind the mask of your civility? And then these these images of... Are you going to put music to that? No, but I, sh- I should, right? Yeah. At some point. I mean, that's like... Those are good lines. That's but, Yeah, that's that's tight. But it was like... So I wanted to like post these around just to kind of get this like... The mask conversation and the ways that it could go. Just like seeding it at random in people's minds. And I was like, well, which trees am I going to tag these to? And immediately it's like, of course, you're going to tag it to the ones that have introduced themselves. The ones that have shown their faces. Remember this one, the like dryadic sloth looking thing that showed up at Halloween. Like each of these trees, they're like calendar marks, you know? So the landscape becomes like almost like the song lines in Aboriginal lore. Mm. It becomes this imbued with this this narrative significance. And so even in like a place like that, which is like a very like metropolitan kind of cosmopolitan but, kind I of mean, place. But that's just it, is the to put a Tyson Yunkaporta spin on that in Santoc, you know, it's it's all about you know, when, the way that he communicates it anyway, what I got from that was that it, it's a mnemonic, you know, like you're embedding your memory in the landscape. It's, it's, and... it's, a, it's a daemonic mnemonic. <laughs> yeah. It is. It's because I see it as a way to connect to the daemonic part of yourself or the what, what Wargo would call the long self, right? The, like the higher self, the part of you that's spread out throughout time rather than just in this incremental locus yes the slaughterhouse five worm time worm yeah the time worm yeah so it's like for me when i see these faces coming out of the woodwork that's like the part of my of the imagination or the the deep uncon the illuminated unconscious coming to the forefront it's a fragmented part of myself that is projected outwards to communicate something back to me and it's a mnemonic device for like time and place. So it is, it's a mnemonic, demonic, mnemonic. But anyway, so, so even in a place like Aventura, I was kind of like having this elemental communion because that's like my escape from 
the kind of um, schizopolis of of modern civilization is to like escape into whatever nature is there and let it speak through me to me. And so now I'm in the desert in in Tucson. And one night I wake up in the middle of the night and there's this like star dial in the room. Like I did a drawing of it. It was like this like stargate with like whirring gears, like clockworks. So I open my eyes and I see this in the darkness of the room and I'm like, all right, yeah, that, okay, that's okay, that's there. And then it kind of fades is away. From, is that from taking your melatonin No, gummies? actually, I, n- not even. <laughs> but yeah, I have talked about melatonin gummies inducing uh, certain hallucinations. But it's just like it's this liminal... You know, like part of me is still in my unconscious and as I'm waking up, it's kind of like dredging this this Atlantean form to the surface and then the water is just dripping away from it as it dissipates into wakingness, right? Okay. And as it dissipates, the like star dial clockworks of the desert fickles, trickles out into this like fickle glow, which is outlining these like desert creatures, like coyotes and things like that. So it feels like the desert is in my room for a moment. And I'm just like, all right, noted, going back to sleep. <laughs> but then over time, that starts to, you know, I, I, I did a drawing based on it just to kind of like map that moment to ensure that it was something that happened. Because it's something like dreams, you know, visions, they, they, they fade away so easily if you don't make a mark of them, if you don't well, reify yeah, okay, them. Yeah, because so coyotes and what else? Uh, like rabbits, things like that. You know, just like these little little creatures that I've seen out there in the landscape. But like like they stood out sort of like warm-blooded mammal glow, like predator vision? Or were you seeing no, snakes and shit like, too? More from like an artistic perspective. I'm thinking it of like the... So imagine like this, the, and I'll send you the pictures too, so you can put them in the show notes if you want. But yeah, sure. if you imagine like the star dial as this kind of like electric DMT like grid and then having those embers burn out and all that's left is the glow and the glow just kind of outlines almost like a stencil, like it outlines where the animal is not. So all that's left is the negative space of the coyote or the rabbit mm. with like a warm glow around it until that also like fades away. Ooh. And I fall back asleep. And so, like, the 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 desert started to kind of, on some level, speak to me, right? But as I'm, like, drawing this thing, I'm having this kind of, like, Eric Wargo time loops moment, too, that I've had before, this weird deja vu, that as I'm drawing the thing, and it's starting to look like what I saw, is like, what if what I saw in the dark was this drawing that I'm making now? embellished by the mind in the waking state to turn it into like full-blown animation it's just something i was entertaining at the time and then there's like more and more pieces that i i find to this puzzle where the the couple days before i decided to come out here to new mexico also kind of on a whim because i had like a weak window of not really a place to stay and i'm like well well, well i've never been to meow wolf michael garfield is out there Mitch Mignano is out there. Like, why not just, like, go on a whim? Like, this is another portal of possibility. Let's go check it out. And so, like, two nights before I left, I, like, intuitively shot footage for a video or a film out in the desert using gifts that the desert had given me. Like, uh, I found this mask in the desert, which wasn't really a mask until I found it, of course. It was just, like, a dried-up piece of cactus that, like, perfectly fit a face. (laughs) 
And that's you know, serial killer talk. You oh, know that, no, right? it is. It's, it absolutely <laughs> is, dude. <laughs> Found this perfect specimen that now I want to make a cactus out of a human face as well to kind of like really perfect this. Balance the cosmos. Balance the cosmos. <laughs> on. But just like following these these impressions of the landscape and then following these different visions I had of what I wanted to shoot and then directing that as best as I can and letting the actors and myself and, and the whole landscape speak, you know? Like when you walk through nature, there's so much beauty to behold, but we don't know what to do with it. So sometimes maybe we take a picture, we post it on Instagram, you know, whatever takes us out of that moment. We like portal ourselves out of that moment. But if you're in the desert, in order to become its mouthpiece in a way, it, it starts lighting up. It's like locations start lighting up and it's like, oh, we need to shoot here right now. Like the, the sunset is perfectly lighting this moment and it becomes this animistic conversation with all the parts playing together to like channel the story, whatever it may be. And so now I'm here working with this raw footage, trying to figure out the story that it was trying to tell. You know, First of all, let me I just, let me just savor the the glee in your voice there <laughs> for a moment. It really is a delight to hear somebody taking so much pleasure in their creative process, you know, rather than seeing it as a uh, a turmoil, uh, you know, a, a well, crucible. There there is plenty of turmoil in it, but the thing is, it's not it's not like assembly, which is funny. Like in L.A., people are like, "Are you in the industry?" And I always want to say, "Like I'm in the artistry." Because, Ooh, it, yeah. because it isn't the assembly of like, okay, make sure we get this coverage and you get the medium shot and this and this. And then an editor just assembles it. It's literally, it's like collecting raw material. And then like the journey is figuring out what it's trying to say, right? In juxtaposing industry and artistry, it's funny because you remind me of the organizational comedy or tragedy or whatever that it is that the noisemakers the noise injectors, you know, the agents of innovation that I talked about with Michael Phillip in the swap cast that we did 161, you know, and how there's always the core of the thing has to defend itself against those people often. You what, know? Is, what is the, the core of what, you know, any kind of institutional, you know, there's the R and D and like these people are allowed to be crazy but they're in like a special enclosure and like there's the board of directors over here and the C-suite answers to the board or, you know, there's always, it's a mechanical thing like purse strings control decisions. And so if you really want to empower creativity, look at a child thinks not of money, right? Like a child not thinks not of, you know, the alignment of action and attention to it's not It's not means yeah. to an end. It's just right. pure. Well, I mean, it's like, so yeah, play. yeah, it's curiosity and discovery and play. That's it. But you've got to be, you got to be careful with that because, you know, your kids will like pick up knives and shit, throw themselves headfirst off the couch. Like you, you really do have to contain it. Um, yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> go outside, go outside and play around. You know, like just this. So at any rate, that's a long way of getting around to like when you said, are you in the industry? No, I'm in the artistry. It's like, well, are you in or are you art? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you're you're on the art side. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But that's that's the just thing is, that is, art is, dust. is re reconciling those things. And that comes down to what you were saying about improvisation too. Like if you're just purely playing in the unbridled joy of it, and you don't have the discipline or the skill to follow through, then you're going to end up with... And it's kind of like where I'm at right now with it, like being up here in the hills. I've been 
uh, staying in Mitch Mignano's Adobe Suite while immersing myself in Adobe Suite and teaching myself how to use Premiere properly. I'm in the space still right now where so that it's just you can like, premiere properly. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but it is like that. There's like an element of con artistry where I have to be the confidence man of my own. I have to call my own bluff in a way to pull through with this because right now it does feel like, ah, oh, what am I going to do with this improvisational raw data? But I know that there's a part of me that will figure this out. So it's this constant challenge of my own doubts and insecurity, which I feel filmmaking, art in general is, but filmmaking especially because of all the different elements that come into play where it's like, okay, it's this tunnel of like doubt and excitement that just swirls and swirls and swirls and you're going to get on the other side and it's going to be either like the darkness or the light is going to overtake. You realize like either the hope was swirling from the end of the tunnel or the failure, but you got to hold fast to one of them and go all the way to the end to figure this out. And I think that's the joy is not knowing exactly like knowing I have the skills and the talents and the abilities to get there, but not knowing how to properly apply them until I'm in that state of figuring it out. And that to bring it back to my friend, Jeff, he just put out this album that, or he hasn't put it out yet, but I was listening to it, to like the first mix of it on headphones, and I started writing like poetic feedback for him because he really created this, I described it as like a, a, a psychedelic, digestive, sonic environment or something like that because it feels like the sound of stomach rumblings bleeding out into the landscape and the beckoning calls from beyond the body to explore this terrain which is ultimately mindscape right the desert the landscape is the the mindscape is the soundscape and so i asked him i was like how do you go about composing this stuff like do you start with a sound do you have an idea and you follow it through and the way he put it which i really resonated with was basically like i'll have a sound that i like and then I listen to that and I ask it, what does this need? And then you build from there. And I love that way of creating because that's the way that I feel that I create is like I listen, I observe the tools I'm using, observe their behavior, and I ask them what they need so that in a way I become the instrument for the tool to express itself. And that sounds pretentious, but if you're in the actuality of that, something magical happens. And he, he came up with a name for his project. And it was just one name. It's not like this person did this project, but the pro the doer and the doing are the same, which I really, I love that idea that it's like a one-off. It's not like uh, Jeff Buckley's Grace, you know? And now Jeff Buckley has, no, he never had another album. My Sweetheart now, the my Drunk. My Sweetheart the Drunk. Sketches for My Sweetheart yeah. the Drunk. But it's like this project, Grace. That's the project, Grace. And it's Grace that created it all the way through, you know? that. Well, that you know, it's funny because... There's a lot there. One thing is I've been thinking a lot about the construction, like in large part inspired by you and, and by, you know, Void Denizen and the, you know, the idea of the construction of an alter ego for a specific musical project. And actually in that case, it was funny because Void Denizen and Voight Denison, you did right. a similar kind of thing there that you're saying your friend did, except it wasn't like the album title, but it was still like... You know, the guy was, it was they're like, like, like levels of dissociation in a way, you know? It's yeah. Like, like Voight Denison was like almost like the human element of the alter ego, and Void Denison is kind of where the Venn diagram well, it's, overlaps. It's like, it's, well, it's like you were the guy and his alter ego. 
Right. You know, right. which is like, that's, <laughs> but I don't know. I saw a Ted talk. I can't remember who gave it, but it was some artist that had done this project and I'll look this up for the show notes thereby binding myself and, you know, in an <laughs> Eric Wargo kind of post-selection way. I just saw myself being mad at my earlier self for having to look this up, but they came up with like 20 different alter egos that actually were like completely different people, you know, very different demographics. And all of these were artists that had like completely different mission statements and artistic visions and media. And like he made up a couple of new artistic media in this project just through the process of ideating so many different so like, this, gallery possibility, like gallery so these shows. Were just, these were like alter egos that he created. And actually, and I think so I know what you're made, talking about. He did a bunch of paintings as different. Yeah, but it wasn't just paintings. Like some of his alter egos were photographers. Some were like dance wow. artists. And like he did all this stuff. And like the thing that, that came through for me was that, you know, musicians in particular, I've heard a lot of music popular musicians and actors like talk about this, this, this difference. Cause you know, sometimes they cross the fence, you know, they go back and forth between, between music and acting, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, there just are a lot of like yourself, you know, musicians and that are actors and whatever. So a lot of them I've noticed talk about how people that are like innate, like stronger in the acting understand that you have Persona that you you uh, you you're wearing a face, right. you know. But then, like artists become celebrity in music, and they sort of like become the mask. They don't have a culture in which it's like given as much critical reflection as it is in acting. You know that mm. like you're playing a role, and people just end up fusing with their stage persona. You know, so the unless you're like a Bowie or somebody who can again like shift through these different different masks and personas. But that was exactly it. That was exactly what you know makes him so potent. And you know, but I think they didn't quite do this. But Ween. Oh yeah, I mean they're they're like channel samplers. Yeah, like ether surfing channel samplers. I love that. Uh, Yeah, totally. Like chocolate and cheese. You're just like every single song is a different world space it's like yeah. the meow wolf of rock yeah you know uh, and like, like my, my, from my room Patton, uh, does a similar thing with like with mr bungle and things where it's like from this very like adhd schizophrenic kind of like genre bending genre fluid <laughs> this genre fluid uh, output yaysayer Oh yeah, I love Yesayer. Yesayer I love that, does that first album, Odd, Odd oh, Hour yeah. Symbols. Yeah. The stuff after that. Really? Okay, you and I have to disagree much. because yeah. Odd Blood, Fragrant World, and Amen and Goodbye, those three albums, hmm. they're doing something there that just stuns me. In particular, in on Fragrant World, which has, in my opinion, one of the strongest closing tracks of all time, Under the Glass of the Microscope, it's just like I feel like you brought that up in uh, another episode we did as well. Did I really? I think Under- so. God I think damn so. it! <laughs> See, I'm, I'm I am in an improv paper tube of <laughs> I'm in cognitive bumper bowling and yeah. you know, sucked into the the reduced attractor. But no, they have a song on that album, uh, "Folk Hero Shtick," that like is talking about cult leaders, and it evoke 
this sound that sounds like the group chant 12 string guitar like you can imagine everybody in like a flowing thing on acid kind of sound and then there's like a filter sweep and then like it pulls out and suddenly you're in another decade Mm. in the same song yeah you know and it's like i love i love when when studio music is is able to affect those kinds of ben harper did that in some of his stuff too you know like i can't recall which song but he did this where he started on an older like an old style like vintage mic and then like played all of his stuff through a like a vinyl scratch Mm. and period specific filters so it you know it sounded like it was on an old record and then by the second verse he just like brought it back up into the 21st century Mm. and had like a full present modern band sound that's always been i think the part of the magic of music is or of soundscaping is that it's it's space and time travel like you can i mean that's why the shamanic interface in like the shipibo for instance is song the ikar os you know the operating system of the ikaros that that guides the attention and like <laughs> they're obviously singing in a particular kind of timbre and a particular kind of tone but like i i, I have this one song it's just like up on my soundcloud somewhere called the sentimental centipede which was a little melody that came to me in a dmt space where i was just like and that's basically the same thing like repeats over and over i like but it. it sounded like a like like a Chinese Peruvian Icaro or something. And then I brought my friend Travis Puntarelli in uh, and, and I had him play this guzheng, this harp that was laying around to find that melody for me. And we just turned that melody over on all different sides and different instruments. And, and you see like how that one little wavelength of sound can take you to places far away and times long ago. And, and there's just, there's such a beauty in that and in finding that. And I think that's, in essence, that's kind of what I look for in creating art because there's so many things that are – like I was just saying, I just watched Bo Burnham's special and it's like it's so amazing and so much talent and craft goes into it. And it's also like extremely topical and resonant. And yet I feel like I, I try to stay away from like the topical – side of things and bring it back to like just that feeling that's always been around and i find that in landscapes mm. and the and the translation of landscapes into various things where there's a prehistory underneath it all you know just like like being on the beach after my cat passed away and just feeling the prehistory of the land and as the as the pelicans fly over and cast their shadows onto the sand it's like this that's the same fucking image as it was hundreds of years, thousands of years ago, but without all these parasols and iPhones and tourists and shit like that. I, you know, I think a lot about the past landscape. Obviously, I think everyone, I know that there are a lot of people that listen to this show that also like walk around in the Midwest for instance, and are like, this used to be at the bottom of a shallow intercontinental right. sea, you know? And like, oh my gosh, I, where I'm standing now, there would have been like a Mosasaurus or something, you know, or a Pteranodon fighting a giant fish. Or I remember being a kid and having just such a vivid imagination and like 
knowing it was me projecting my imagination, but still straight up seeing a Tyrannosaurus, like right. walking, like silhouetted behind that line of trees, you know, and just, just being like, this is what the primeval forest. Yeah. You know, that like, and I, I think that's what, that's what the word trippy brings up to me. It's like, if something is trippy, it's because the trip, the journey's work that, that brought it to this culmination is visible in the culmination, or at least can be sensed, you know, like you're in this landscape and it's just like, for a moment, like you get the shockwave back to what it was. You feel that story catching up to you. There's something really, and that's, I mean, to bring it back to the road and this kind of like rapid upcycling of selves, you know, as you're like, I'm staying in this place for a week and then I'm going to that place for a week. You, you're constantly <laughs> uprooting yourself and upcycling yourself and you become more attuned to the, just the flux of places. Like when you're in a place, you settle in and everything becomes invisible, you know, the things that excited you before. Like you like you get your yeah. room all nicely set up, you hang all your paintings, and then you don't even see them anymore. Rolf Potts was talking about that in his book Vagabonding, and we talked about that when I had him on the show of just the yeah, the the many different layers of nuance around what it means to you know, in terms of like to traveling in order to see with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, because it also become I mean, I don't think I'm going to win anyone by preaching the Aristotelian golden mean here, but like it, there is the other end of it, which is, which I'm not saying that you're doing, which is, but like that you just end up needing to see things with fresh eyes to the point where right. you. That's, that's what we call vagabondage. When, you, when you're bound to, to constant change. How do you <laughs> bat a thousand on the portmanteau? <laughs> I like seriously. I got them all pre-made. I'm just waiting for the situation. <laughs> you just got a huge database. I, of, I had like, this joke for a while where I was like, I wanted to start selling punchlines on Etsy. <laughs> like hand handcrafted heirloom punchlines have been in the family for years. Like that's not a monkey. Go for seventy bucks, and then somebody'd be like, "But you just told me that one." You know, like why would I buy that from you? It's like, well, but you don't know the joke. But like what? Like 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 what is that? And they'll be like. Uh, that's a candle it's like no that's not a monkey see you didn't pay for it you didn't buy into it so you couldn't use it so that's kind of where i live i have like all the punchlines <laughs> ready and i'm just waiting for the situations just like in life we're all we're, we're one-liners right we're like genetic string of code one line of code looking for our joke to fit into mm. we're all punchlines looking for our jokes that's very greek it's all greek to me man <laughs> <laughs> but you know dude actually i'm really glad that you circled back around to the whole memory and landscape thing, you know, because mm -hmm. I was talking to my father and my father, he's getting on and has been a bit more explicit with me recently about what happens when your parents die, you know, and like what a significant transitional phase it was for him. His father died when he was like 28 and then... Wow. His mother died when he was in his forties, and so he, he's he's always like, "Remember you, you know, one day you and your brother, like that's all you're gonna have is each other." And like when, and then there's this whole thing I can't remember, you know, where it comes from, but the whole like, uh, you're not actually an adult in some sense until your parents are gone, and I, you know maybe that's like more of a Jungian thing, in the sense that that's the moment at which you realize that you have internalized them, right? You know that you've sort of 
absorbed the imago or whatever. Yeah. Well, I I feel like that's what the the return to take care of my father was in a way for me is like that individuation of becoming the father to my father who has become more like a child, like he's very vulnerable and uncertain because, you know, the the way he describes Alzheimer's from the inside out is that he's got a puzzle in his mind and the pieces don't fit together anymore. And so, like, imagine, like, the the mindset that comes with that is, like, very uncertain of simple tasks. So, like, he would sometimes, like, he, he would, like, wander into my quarters at night and, and ask me, like, for, sometimes he'd, like, wake up from a dream or something, you know? Just like as a child, you wake up from a bad dream and you show up, except in his case, he didn't register as a dream and he'd be like... Uh, I'm trying. I need to get to this dentist. Like they just called my name, but I don't know how to get there. And I'm like, it's two a.m. You can go back to sleep. You went to the dentist a week ago. It's fine. Like just go back to sleep. It was probably a dream. And it's these really tender moments where I am now the father. And I feel like it was also something I needed to really go through and step into because, like, right now also I'm like I'm recognizing my shortcomings and limitations and I'm trying to work on them and better myself in them in simple things like even like learning premiere like I should have done this years ago but I'm doing it now you know because I always yeah. like outsource that to like I I have an editor but then you know like it's like no I need to be able to know how to do everything on my own too and I feel like there were always things outsourced to the parental figures and then when you see them fading from their own sense of competence then you take on that role. So it is kind of like um, a rites of passage in that way. But you were, what was the, what was the point? Oh, just that, well, I don't know. There's a chapter in David Eagleman's sum, which is a really interesting book. I don't know if you've read this. It's a famous neuroscientist who calls himself a possibilian in that it's basically like agnosticism, but you know, more kind of like pop, philosophy he's got a fun spin on it but he just is like okay so here's 40 different versions of the afterlife that i i consider totally possible but i have no idea mm-hmm. you know and they're all just like w- one page sort of micro fictional cool. pieces and you know it, it and, sounds really familiar actually i feel like i've chanced upon some of it or something yeah i mean it's been around for a while now a decade or so but it's a beautiful little book. Every one of them feels like it could be a Pixar film kind of thing. Mm. I mean, not every one. I think a couple are kind of... But at any rate, the the point is one of them has this thing, which is actually, I think, fairly common in traditions around the world, which is that you know you you die twice. You die once when your body dies, and then you die again when people forget you. Right. You know? Coco. That's a Coco moment, isn't it? Yeah. The last time somebody mentions your name. Exactly. Like yeah. Like that's a, the, yeah, the sort of yeah. mestizo Catholic kind of stuff going on down there. But so. Let's keep, we're, we're, there's something I can add to the whole, like the, the keeping each other alive or keeping the memory alive was something that I thought about a lot as well, like while taking care of my father. Because first of all, it's really interesting that his house his apartment is filled with elephant statues and like elephant figurines and stuff like oh, that's that. ironic in an unfun way yeah because i mean elephants are known for their long term memory right for one um but the reason that he has his fixation with elephants i think is tied to a psychic experiment we did some years ago which i, I might touch on to that in a second but i wanted to finish this thought first 
So the other thing that's interesting is that in my quarters, in like, let's say like the caretaker's quarters, there's a walk-in closet and it's filled with photo albums. We have like a hundred years worth of photo albums. His father kept them and then uh, my father has been keeping them up. And so every day we could grab an album and look through it and see like what remains of memory, you know? Wow. So there is like, I'm like the keeper of the records in this situation, right? So I know his history well. I can like bring things up and like remind him or like point things out. But then one of the things it's, as you see the personality waning and like the cog cognitive abilities faltering, the things that remain as things fade are a lot of like the memes that we carry through our lives, like our catchphrases or our little like witticisms and things like that. And a lot of my father's little f idiosyncratic phrases I found out were things that his father used to say or things that his mother used to say. So he's literally, the last thing that remains are the loads that he's bared from them who are no longer around and carries them on to his final moments. So like as he himself fades, what he's holding on to is their memory to carry that f further, you know? Wow. And there's something really beautiful about that that I really resonate with because that's kind of how I I feel like the stakes are always really high for me in life. It's always kind of like life or death. Like everything is like <laughs> on this this crux. Like there's this importance to connections and relations. And I have like my memory craft stories around them to try and preserve these fleeting moments. You know, there's this who, – who was it that said like man is a time-binding animal? Well, that was I was going to bring that, that up. I was going to bring that up because earlier, because of uh, the before time conversation on mm -hmm. on uh, post selection or self consistency, you know, and and uh, our our organization in the time worm, yeah, the time worm anatomy. So we got to like time code, time key, all these little. Uh, these these cross sections of the time worm right in order to to sustain them because like let's say god forbid my my memory would fade then i'd still have these documents to leave behind right to implant so that the story can carry on so that their name will be repeated even after i'm gone that the the skein of associations lives on yeah mm. but uh I mean, I could get into that psychic experiment if you want. You know, what's funny? I, I, I do want to hear that, but first, I want to I want to say that it's yeah. it's interesting to think about culture in that way. Uh, when I had Tata Hazumi and Dare Sohei and Naomi Most on together to talk about cultural somatics, and it was basically that conversation where Tata had written this really fabulous essay about the white cultural soma and the black cultural soma, so as to provide a way of discussing these things as neurophysiological patterns you know as like traumas that are held in common by groups of people that are not necessarily of a particular skin color you know so you can <laughs> and, and of course these are not mutually exclusive in some respects like or it's a gradient or you know but um you know so to think about that just like truly touching insight that you you just made about carrying forth your parents' memory, that's us looking at it still from a relatively narrow historical lensing or, or, um, dilation. And, you know, you, it's 
one of the books I continue to think about with the show and, and talk about a lot is Arthur C. Clarke's last novel, which he wrote with Stephen Baxter called The Light of Other Days, in which we learn that we can stretch a wormhole basically through space time and either take it really far away from us in space or like really far from us in, in time. And so we end up being able to explore both space and time without leaving the planet. And it also means that we have this like kind of perfect surveillance over the past also, which as soon as people invent this technology and it leaks and it becomes a known quantity in the future of, you know, humankind, then everybody's, you know, like culture changes profoundly because you just know you're being watched all the time. But so like at any rate, like, it's like con- conscious surveillance, like your, yeah. own, your, your own consciousness is well, like the kids that grow up in that world don't wear clothes. Cause they're just like, what's the point? <laughs> but like the, um, I mean, it's an interesting sort of parable, even if it doesn't hold up to like how things might actually go as far as like believable speculative fiction is concerned. But like, and also this, this happened in uh, dark constellations, which is this book we're reading for the book club, which is, you have like a surveillance that extends far enough into the past, clearly enough into the past that you can start putting trains together. And you could say like, actually that's not just your dad carrying his parents thing. Like that witticism has been around for like seven generations. Exactly. And like, yeah. you know, that's, I was, and that's I was just point. thinking about that too. Cause it's just like in the sense that, that something is trippy because the culmination carries the genesis of the thing within it right it's like we're all trippy zip files because we're comprised of compressions and even if you look at how your inner voice is generated i i was listening to a radio lab about this and then i ended up reading the book they were talking about which i can't think is called the voice within or voices within and this guy lays out how as a child you know we're always like speaking outside our head we're like playing with toys and we're saying what we're doing we're like that car is doing the thing the building with the blocks and and then the parents come in and they say something to the kid and like this is all like starting to like influence the way they speak and then it becomes this interior voice right you learn how to you you know read without speaking out loud basically right and then like the 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 ink the wet ink in the mind is like continuing <laughs> to babble on. But that inner voice is actually a compression of your influences, right? It's like your parents, your siblings, your teachers. Oh, yeah. All of that gets basically like gl- glossed over with, you know, your personal aura. But it's comprised of all these things. And that's, I think, what like, if you look at like... Um, the superego, right? Like it's... so Yeah, sort of like a superego kind of thing. But then you can, like, in psychedelic experiences, I've had it where, like, all of a sudden there's a choir of voices in my head telling me that they're expecting me to do something, but I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, they all want me to do something, but I don't know what to do or how to do it. And then my girlfriend is like, who? Who is saying this? And it's quiet in the room. And it's like, mm, it's just me, I guess. <laughs> but But in that sense, also, like, if, yeah, those witticisms are passed on through time like there's all these compressions that get passed on and even like on a biological level like your gut biomes your grandmother passed it on to your mother and then she passes it on to you and it's like that's gone back it's the same gut bacteria being carried on and so it's the same mental bacteria as well that are propagated and and it is interesting to, to wonder to to what extent the uh like microbiotal compatibility dominates 
or, you know, like reigns in the realm of human social relationships. Like, you know, like, you know, that like BO is largely about your bacterial bouquet. And so, you know, that like the fact that somebody smells good is mm-hmm. because their microbiome is compatible with yours, uh, or at least you think it is. Do you want to do a fecal transplant so I can <laughs> carry some of that delicious body odor you've got? But, I mean, it just gets into, I mean, it gets into those, you know, into the ship of Theseus kind of question about like, what identity even is. There are so many movies about this. I forget the one with Will Smith. Anyway, there's like this whole, you know, like the organ transplant thing, right, or like the right. memories that are distributed through the body consistently challenging the brain-based or brain-exclusive memory right. theory of like what's going on with memory. And it's just... A, and that, yeah. That's that's what I feel like happens to me when I get into kind of like a... into nobody space. Or that's, I guess, that to me is what void denizen represents. It's a void denizen, right? It's not just like a denizen of the void, an inhabitant of the emptiness, but it's also like an illegitimate inhabitant in the same way that... <laughs> <laughs> the the ego is a squatter in the soul, right? So like I gave that a name, and that's kind of like the persona, <laughs> the 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 maskless persona with which I'm able to travel into this liminal space, right? To create from a hopefully pure standpoint. And I I had this experience where years ago, this was in the desert. I, w- I was kind of like I was going on this psychedelic exploration for a summer where i was i was sort of building off of that initial insight that the one that i talked about the first time i was on future fossils and the one that i really like delved into on that um anthony peak episode the intro of uh, self-portraits as other people episode 13 i think and it's that idea that you know the things we create are are frozen in the fossilized future in this repository of eternity and to kind of outwit the impossible to bring it down to earth, right? So I was creating these rituals and these psychedelic explorations in order to basically bring this manuscript down to earth to shamanically retrieve and, and, you know, steal the Promethean fire from the gods sort of thing. But what ended up happening... You precocious scamp. (laughs) Right? What ended up happening was uh, during this like three-day escapade in the desert, I basically came to this realization that I was the living scripture that needed to be freed from eternity. And for like a a series of psychedelic episodes, I kind of like became this embodied living word in my own experience. And how this manifested itself was that the desert, which was perceived as this visually beheld landscape, became unmuted. And the unmute button, I guess, is when your 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 false identity gets taken out of the equation and you become this kind of like vibrational bleed with the environment. And so by unmuting this visual landscape of the desert, the desert was made of sound. Like the vibrations, everything was just this like... <laughs> this like cacophony of sound that I felt in my body. And then I started beatboxing. And I wasn't a beatboxer at the time, but the sounds started coming. It was this like industrial crackle and bone snapping, just like pure like desert essence. And what what was happening was these frequencies were being delivered to me by something that I, I jovially titled metronomes. Uh-huh. Metro 
genomes, like gnomes, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But then later when I was like analyzing my insane experience of becoming this like embodied mouthpiece for this environment and like speaking in Shakespearean prose and beatboxing through this landscape in order to like unearth this, this, the prophetic presence of me, you know, I started looking at it and I was like metronomes. Okay. Metro genomes. And I was like, what is a genome? And a genome is like the pocket of genetic information <laughs> that designates a particular thing, right? Like a monkey has a genome. So were you just a cactus has in a, a genome. data sonification exercise? Sort of. The way I interpret it now is that what I called metronomes, which are like tangible pulses, that I've personified by calling him gnomes in the same way that <laughs> Brian Froud, who create, who's like a fairy folklorist and who created the worlds of the labyrinth and the dark crystal, he talks about when he's channeling these fairy forms that they're tangible pulses in the air and then he just lets that speak through him and then whoop, there's a little fairy form and then sometimes it'll tell him, I'm over here and he'll go in his garden and discover a plant that he had never seen before, that sort of thing. So I started interpreting these metronomes, these tangible frequencies as metro meaning measure and genome being the genome as like, for instance, that cactus over there, its genome was being delivered to me and implanted into like the chalice of my channel to express itself because it had eons of sunshine to transmit, but it never had anybody to talk to or talk through. So, I mean, do you, so do you think that you're, you're, body was somehow translating biophotonic communication into sound i don't know about biophotonic communication but maybe the way am i just being just like, too crass i it might be it might be too scientific of a yeah a, a, a gnomer for me to wrap my head around but but the simplest way that i could put it is that by setting aside the the notion of identity of who i am and becoming like kind of like hyper empathic to the inanimate world around me that world was lent the agency i usually ascribe to myself mm. and so now the world is an extension of my agency and it's granting me agency to express itself in human terms Ooh, i was okay this is awesome i was i was gonna try and get to this earlier and I'm glad I didn't then and I, I did now because you just <laughs> developed it into this like glorious fruiting body. Because I wanted to say like back at the beginning of the conversation when we were talking about landscape agency mm -hmm. that I really liked hearing uh, Bioa Kumalafe on Gordon White's show Rune Soup talking about from a post-humanist literary critical perspective how this undermines the way like the, the causal chain that is taken for granted in design that you know people think about i am designing an object or a typeface or a government or whatever and it's like okay arguably you are but it's equally true and perhaps often more relevantly true that you are also it's the classic free will thing about like you, you're free to go after what you desire but you're not really free to choose your desires except to the degree that you know as eric davis has commented on for years that the notion of pharmaceutical self-modification does open the window for us to uh, act on ourselves 
in that way in a kind of uh, metacognitive fashion but across time rather than like within a given moment there's a lot to unpack in that, that yeah <laughs> that's, a, um, that's a big that's what we call a big idea you just put on the yeah, table um oh but so the, the yeah but just the point being that like if you are ontologically open like causally open in that way and be, you know being acted on that and you know this is this is why people take acid and then they give the rest of their acid away right is because you realize that like intellectual property is bullshit because you are one with everything and you know so it's just like but then but then there's the part where it's like but the desert spoke through me not through you and that's oh, where like I mean, the intellectual yeah. property thing comes back in right it's like oh if you're yeah that's the unfortunate uh yeah. Yeah, try to steer away from that. One of the, one of the incidental ironies of it is always like when you describe a sense of of ego ne- egolessness or becoming channel, it's usually in this very megalomaniacal way. So uh, I realized that the way I just like threw that out there, it, it might have sounded like super boasting, like oh, I became channel for this place in my crystalline channel of my being. But the part of the exploration of what I was looking at that led me there was also like my introduction to ayahuasca was through a person who was kind of like what I call a chakra peddler. Like he had all this, this chakra uh, paraphernalia he was selling and uh, you know, the chakra has petals because of their flowers. So that's kind of funny. Um, was it folk hero shtick? Is that a name of a person? Well, no, that's the Yesir song. Oh no, I don't know. Anyway, no, go on. Anyway. So I, I went into the ayahuasca spaces looking at, kind of like my intrinsic light body and like, okay, so what are the chakras? What is this? Actually, this funfair totem, like what is the actuality of that? And it, it led me basically to like a better understanding of color and how that plays into the body and of these just like vibrational parts of the organs. And from that, I kind of conceived this notion, which I also like paralleled with with ideas of Kabbalah, of this kind of just like this 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 chalice inside of us that is like this mirror-like being that basically like our nature is to mirror nature. Like if you look at everything we've built, like you were just talking about engineering something, building that off something, like a city is basically a body, right? It's got like intestines underground. Oh, it's got... totally. So, so... Oh, can I, can I just interject yeah, yeah. here real quick to say that earlier when you were making the distinction between investigating the animistic psychogeography of a city versus a more conventionally understood wild place. Yeah. I couldn't help but think of my, my old friend Chelsea who was living in New York for a while and talked about this relationship that she was having with one of the rivers that now runs under New York it comes up through a couple wells and it like into the plumbing under various, I think like the New York uh, city library is like one of these Mm. spots where like you can actually commune with this. It's like close to the surface and like you can, it has, you know, some sort of weird history in Mm. its, you know, in its covering and so on. And so, you know, just the thought that like, even though these, these landscape features may be buried underground you know you can still ghostbusters to that shit yeah it feels like that's the premise of many an early david lynch film is like suburbia as like this denial of this natural world with all its mysteries coming back up 
through the unconscious, through our dreams and things the like that. The ants and the black ooze say Ex- otherwise. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, so that's kind of what I meant by how I felt this landscape, like where I felt it was in this kind of intrinsic vibrational being amidst my guts, you know, this like the the mental within the biological. And then I was, I've been listening to uh, David Abram and his amazingly narrated and written audiobook Becoming Animal, which is kind of a follow-up of Spell of the Sensuous, where he touches onto a lot of, like, like the experience as I related to you about genomes and things like that is very conceptual, right? It's obviously like I thought about it and I've narrativized it into coherence, but the actual experience was a kind of madness, a kind of like psychotomimetic immersion in this field. And, and it's kind of a literal version of something David Abram talks about in regards to language and dying languages in that our animal language, which is to say our speaking voice, like right now I'm, I'm relaying words, but there's all these vulnerable emotional tones that are driving it at the same time. And that's like, that speaks to the body rather than to the mind. That's like the emotional part of it, that our animal language is informed by the landscape. That's why certain people speak certain ways. And so as the, if the landscape changes or dies, like if the, the warbling brook dries up, that sound no longer influences the way we speak, mm. the musicality of our speech, the the way, you know, like the, the, the warbler's song is going to influence the people of that region to speak a certain way. I feel like I am in some way profaning the way that you just put this, articulated this phenomenon in, in relating this, but I think it is uh, interestingly substantiating to note the recent archaeological discovery studying uh, ancient human poop, I guess, that we've undergone a microbiotal mass extinction in the human gut over the last several thousand years. Mm. And like the diversity of stomach and intestinal flora is like a single digit percentage of what it was to for paleolithic humans who were living on a much more varied diet you know and so it's it's interesting how we have like it jeopardized ourselves through the sanit the self sanitization that comes right. with that kind of you know process of and source cell inment and enclosure you know and yeah. we're like we're like stuck in that like doing and doing that. I like that that the word gut flora also makes me think of like the the chakra, you know, the the, the flower of the gut. Yes, the Don Tien used to be a Don Twenty. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, the the but it's like it's such a beautiful metaphor that the the dwindling and the changing of our environment also changes the way we speak in the way the musicality of our speech and for me like the desert becoming sound through me is like a very literal way of speaking like like sizzle like the sizzle drenched you know sand saturated uh dust drips of the land yeah i think the some of the most so john c writes count to a trillion has this whole thing where this guy becomes super intelligent by injecting himself with this experimental nanotechnology And in order to decode an alien monument, you know, and he goes crazy or like, does he, because he's like super intelligent. And so it's, you know, it's hard to know what he's doing, but like they, they finally get him into a, 
a situation where he's in like a smart room. And so he's able to use his cell basically as like a thinking surface, like an extension of his body map. And he's able to control the room with his movement, you know, and like his, he like even down to like, because he's, he's like rewired his nervous system. He's able to like control blood flow to different parts of his body so he can control like the thermal map of his body to create an additional layer of like textual communication on top of his dance wow and so he's like communicate he's like using this room computer it sounds like lucy or limit which i call lady limitless but that movie lucy yeah 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 yeah, yeah the lady movie, Lim- <laughs> the movie limitless is like yeah, the male totally. counterpart to that yeah. yeah except you know again with the black goo in that that film you know, it's been a while since I talked about Black Goo on this show. Well, that's show, also but... in the in the intro to the Anthony Peake in that story that that black ink like substance that creeps in and that overtook my girlfriend's face and then twinkled with transformative power to transform into different faces feels very much uh, in line with that Black Goo metaphor, but also with the like translinguistic fluid of, of McKenna's telling. Yep, and, yep. And I see it as just like as as the primordial Rorschach because I like to think of the mind. And our like subjective interiority as having formed after the written word, kind of condensed the animal language that we would relay through sound in a way that once it's written down, the ink is wet and it it infiltrates the mind where then either it can dry and you become like a very rigid minded thinker or you become fluid. You're a fluid thinker because it, because the Rorschach can can basically like unfocus the image that it's prompting and you can see it in its essence, which I guess is kind of like a Zen thing, but with a stain on it. Well, you know, Instead it's of interesting, like the clear never... light of the void with a stain. Shit. I'm sorry. I keep interrupting you. No, but you no. just get me so excited. It's <laughs> like, it never occurred to me until you just brought this together. Now that the black goo and all of these different instantiations through the, you know, the fiction verse, all of them, and also the, you know, related like real world conspiracy theory stuff about black goo. All of them are about it being this sort of like pluripotent stem cell nanotech mass of like it can be, you know, it, it, it transforms things it, it, and it has that sort of like magic mirror yeah. uh, quality to it. You know, like the Prometheus, like that, that was one of those like deep lessons of the Giger alien series, which was that it's the, the monster is a reflection of whatever it like bursts out of, you know? So it's like, it's always becoming mm. a reflection of you, you know, like when they got into the the action figures and there's like a rhinoceros alien and a praying mantis alien. And like all of these things had like exploded out of some giant extraterrestrial form of this earth like creature so that you could mm. get, but at any rate, the, you know, the way that it reflects us point being, it hadn't occurred to me until just now, when you were saying all that, that maybe the black goo is actually just ink ink and that, that it's like the reason we're obsessed with this symbol is because we are still like dealing, like we're still reckoning with the trauma of having taken our minds and put them outside of ourselves by writing down language and worse yet occluding ourselves from the natural and the sensual world through that which is i think what abram gets into at the core of his writings is that we used to be in touch with the sensual world and the language of the landscape we could feel it in our animal bodies 
we can, you know, on so many different levels. And then as soon as you get something like the printing press or just like written language, it all becomes this like synesthetic interiority where now there's a voice marked on a page, silent sound bites speaking to, speaking to your eyes and forming images in your mind and sounds in your mind that it, it, it abstracted us and extracted us from the natural world. And I think that that's where a lot of our issues as humans have come from is that dissociation from what we are. And that's where you get like these, these notions of like the transhumanist notions or this race for space. It's all like dissociation from the body and the larger body of the earth. So is making a book out of this podcast an act of evil? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think in some ways, ironically, if that's even the right word, you have to use the same thing you have to use the poison to make the medicine in a way, right? Like that's kind of in some subliminal way that's kind of been part of my journey is to – if you look at the written word as as a medium of death and of immortality, right? Time binding. We're writing things down so that they last but at the same time it's also like you don't remember them now because you've written them down. Furthermore, the book has to be read by somebody. The book doesn't remember itself. Read like blood. Yeah, like you, you you write the thing and it's like it, it, the thought dies on the page and the actual page looks like uh, a bunch of tombstones in a, in a field. But I think that to create language in such a way that it is, again, a living language, that it is, again, lively and that it speaks with the same kind of lyrical whimsicality that a landscape has, that's like the, kind of the reversing of the fall, right? It's almost like we're we're like magicians that cast a spell on the world and fell under the spell ourselves. So the journey is how to reverse that, how to like undo the curse we've cast on ourselves. But um doesn't yeah. look like anything to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's funny to me because I feel in 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 a lot of conversations the 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 role of language gets overlooked because it's the overlooked overlooker, right? We're using language as a means of reasoning through things, but then we forget to look at the medium of which consciousness is formed, like the fabric of our mediation that's actually dictating the terms in which we can explore right. what we're trying to, right. the terrain we're trying to move through. So sometimes, like, like I did a DMT trip with a girlfriend once and I came back from it and I was like, Oh, I saw this like squirmy, churning cephalopod corridor with these like squirmy, churning pillars of tentacles. She's like, oh, wow. Yeah, that sounds really cool. But I, I don't really have words for what I experienced. And I was like, do you have sounds? You know, like, you know, like anything. Like if you don't have the words for it, you at least have the sounds for it. <laughs> well, did, did she? No, nah, she didn't. <laughs> sadly she, she she had plenty of words though but not regarding the experience and i think for a lot of people it is like oh, it's a fleeting dream and actually it's funny because my, my mother she had some some cancer cells some years ago and she had them removed and then she started taking um cbd and thc oil very you know minimally but she kind of swears by it because since then she hasn't had any problems and so i asked her because my, my parents are not like psychedelic people or uh, sub substance using people at all. 
so I was like, so how did, how do you experience that now? Like, do you ever sometimes like take an extra drop or something and like get a sense of it? And she said, well, sometimes she said it in Dutch. Dan kijk ik langzamer. Then I, sometimes I look more slowly. Like her, her vision is slowed down. She's like, it sounds so weird to say that. And I was like, so what you're saying is you go into a space where you don't really have words for it, the sensation, and you just invent a term for it. And it sounds funny. Welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like the whole origin of language in the first place kind of thing is the mathematical argument from Martin Nowak and his co-authors on the evolution of syntax was that you have an error catastrophe that occurs if you're trying to remember too many words that are used to describe an entire event, you know, rather than like this, this is pre, you know, before the sentence and every word is like unique. It starts out real simple. It's just like, you know, Eagle, Jaguar, Hey, you're sexy, but like you're living in a, a larger and larger community and it ends up being more things like walk in that direction, you know, come with me, you know, numbers one, two, and three, black, white, and red, you know, you get all this stuff and then pretty mm -hmm. soon you're having to use words for like entire operations and like, right. you know, longer, more complex thoughts. And the question is at some point you have to use a sentence because it's just, you just easier. Like you, you, you can remember fewer words and mix them together and, more ways than it you know it's 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 not a burden on your memory but you know the question is were psychedelics responsible for getting to the point where you're trying to describe something that you are certain is of like the utmost relevance and importance to other people in your community and one it stymies all efforts but two it in improves your eloquence it makes you more capable of taking a shot at the ineffable and the unspeakable right and therefore performatively demonstrating the value of both symbiosis with these psychedelics or ecodelics as richard doyle puts them but also it like improves your game mm -hmm. you know because you're demonstrating neuro fitness so there's a sexual selection component well you, in, you you get to author reality for others who can't find the words for it you get to kind of like lay the tracks of perception right and that's hot i yeah. love it yeah. i love it when somebody you know mm. <laughs> well it, uh, first of all i love ecodelic instead of psychedelic because it takes the emphasis away from mind which is already an ineffable thing and it brings us back to the eco, the home, the landscape as mind, right? Which and comes back like your to whole the, thing, which like the surrendering of agency into the landscape. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So ecodelic, that definitely resonates with me. Uh, the other thing that that I thought about there in the complexification of language is like the the notion of Ursprach, like the primal speak, right? Like mm. what was the primal speak like? And I think about this often because the way I understand it, it started off with just making sounds, right? Like, ugh. Ugh, like means over there there is right there's always deer, a gestural right? component uh, yeah a gestural yeah. components an inflection Ugh. but then you add urgency because now it's no longer a deer that we're hunting it's a saber-toothed tiger coming at you so you go Ugh, uh, like it's like the inflection changes the urgency and the spatial quality of it and then over time that evolves 
into like the complexity that we have. And I'm thinking like, what is that bridge, right? Between those things. And I think it's a kind of pantomime. And I think it's what the Shipibo actually emulate. Not when they're singing the Icaros, but when they're leading up to it, when they're just doing the like, it's like a shamanic charades where each sound is a shape and it's asking you to guess what that shape is. And it speaks to you intrinsically and it shapes your experience beyond words, but with the same thing that the words are made of, which is breath. Hmm. And so you have like these moments in a ceremony where it's almost like the shamans are sitting there and they're ascribing these sounds to describe everything that's going on in the room so that now there's like this map of the room in the air. So like when, let's say, a person gets up to go to the bathroom, it goes... And then they're gone and then they come back and it goes... And they're sitting back down, you know? I think that sometimes when I see people walking around, I think like... Well, it's cartoony. It's cartoony as fuck. And I think like that's that Peter and the Wolf thing, basically. Right? Oh, yeah. It's this musicality beyond words that is very descriptive. It's like it's... Jabberwock would be like the next step of bringing that into language where you're speaking nonsense that oh brings perfect clarity to mind. What I wouldn't give to be part of an ayahuasca ceremony in which the the maestro overseeing the ceremony is capable of like communicating musically with the depth and intricacy of Peter and the Wolf. Like right. If you can just imagine like having somebody <laughs> like a, an Onyx Ashanti. Do you know this guy? Mm-mm. Oh my God. He's two of the, the, the noisiest, most cacophonous episodes of Future Fossils because he picked up the call inside his house. It's like he lives in this maker space in Detroit and like people are like building robots mm-hmm. in the background and like, you know, you're like this, you know, it's like secret lab, crazy noises going on the whole time. But he... 3D printed this modular plastic suit thing that uh, covers, you know, like his whole body, and he uses as a full body translinguistic gestural like, wow. control interface thing. So he's he's like full on. We had the most amazing conversation about like the evolution, the future evolution of language beyond what we think of as language, you know. But like kind of what I was getting at with Count to a Trillion and that Menelaus Montros and his post-human or transhuman uh, room computer thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, because honestly, like, if you are at the point where you've spilled out into the whole cybernetic environment that you inhabit, you know, Peter Watts asks this kind of question in Blindsight, which is we had the first book club call about this. And, like, it is the augmented scientists in that book are, like, partially enmeshed in like spread through the ship that they're inhabit that they're you know inside as they're on this mission and like you know the question of you know the blind man cane kind of thing and so at that point you know i've always thought it looks just so more and more obscenely gnostic transhumanism and like the notion that you know you just sort of like adopt and then shed bodies because you're you know like an information you can just like re-sleeve yourself right as 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 though the experience of a soul or of a personality isn't tied to the the dictations of the body right right or i mean but you know that it maybe it is but like we get to a point when we can record the body in enough detail that you can like copy paste a person you know Mm. john c Wright addressed this in some of his other stuff he called it noumenal recording 
And he says like AI are the the ones that figure it out for us that we never, we never understand how it's actually done, which I I think is just a completely brilliant conceit for his book, the golden age, you know, that we made the the machine smarter than us can figure out the things we don't understand. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that, that happens a lot that Dan Simmons did that in Hyperion, but like it, that similar sort of thing I was thinking about when you're describing that room with the nanotechnology and the room is an extension of the person in applying that to like the, the animistic nature metaphor. It's, you know, like my interiority is simultaneously projected outwards to where now the landscape is an extension of myself, but the landscape itself is, is the puppet that's, that's pulling the strings of the puppeteer. Right. Right. So, and so you better not, you better hope it's not like a corporate landscape, which is exactly, why you get into that's like what the I'm space thinking. colony. If you're, if, you're terror. In this, if you're in this room that has been made an extension of yourself through nanotech, like who's in charge of that? And can that, does the room also extend itself back into the subject, you know? Well, that's Jaron Lanier's whole thing about social media right now, as it stands that you see are, the, the, see the dreadlocked yeah, VR dude. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. He says, you know, like he's uh, on a crusade against social media because he knows that it just makes you the tip of the tentacle of some other agencies that you're not aware of you know right. and like that that's not that doesn't comport with his understanding of human agency or dignity yeah you know and i don't i don't think he's wrong i mean i'm i'm in a kind of a shitty situation working social media i think all of us have been swindled but like even beyond that to know this to accept it and then to be like damn i could have a job that didn't require me to work inside this radioactive mine all day without proper right. protection is like what it feels like psychically these well, days and it's how do you how do you counterbalance that do you like put your put your hands in the soil i guess raising a kid is like the gardening super duper helps yeah. yeah i'm thinking like something that just takes you out of that like back to the central world again right like because you're dealing in avatars and representation the whole time that the that the, the presentation the presence yeah gets uh it's eclipsed so much because you're, you're like basically working in Plato's cave all day long and you've got a lot you're a lot invested in the reflections out there but well I mean you know there's that of course to be non-dual about it it's like no less Plato's cave anywhere else <laughs> true, you know <laughs> it's but I mean but I think it does smear people and I think that this is kind of the interesting consequence of, you know, when Marshall McLuhan suggested that electronic communication technologies were just an extension of the nervous system, you know, one of the things that's that's become really obvious to me about that is that it means that the the human being is really only like focused in the body that that we sort of assume is the entirety of a person, but it's actually just focused there whereas it's like distributed all over everywhere rhizomatically you know if i rely on the cognitive augmentation of my phone at this point and i think it's safe to say anyone with a phone does to some degree then you know some part of you holobiont is the term that is used for like post individual individuals you know like the animal and its microbiome you know mm-hmm. and then we talk about like the sociobiont which is the social groupings in which all of these people are are conjoined in an so, egregore so these or are whatever like di- yeah, different programs that are basically running across multiple people that you're saying different well i mean that that's like 
I guess like part of what it, how it instantiates, like I, I was thinking, you know, I, I remember I, I gave a talk at Evolver Spore in San Francisco in 2010 about how like one day we're going to be able to, you know, there'll be enough people wearing retail consumer grade beyond EEG brain reading headbands, like, you know, full brain scan stuff. And you'll be able to see patterns in people's dreams at at scale. Like I had a buddy who gave 123 people DMT for their first time in one year. And his exchange for that was to have them write a thorough trip report. And then he just treated it as like a big data collection thing (laughs) and was doing it completely analog just for his own curiosity. You know, he was, he was like a clearly resurrected 10th century or 11th century Islamic genius scholar guy that was working in a mango grove in, in Sarasota. But at any rate, he um, collated all this stuff and found these patterns in people's trips. You know, I think he said something like 19 people saw the blue lady, stuff like that. Like that, you know, a lot of people, I think over like a dozen people saw little gray men yeah. He was able to correlate it all and basically do the work of a naturalist, you know, and a taxonomist. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I really admire that. That's very much in the keeping with Aldous Huxley's injunction at the beginning of heaven and hell to assemble a kind of like guild of psychedelic naturalists that would mm-hmm. go in. And, and I think you do that is, I guess, the, you know, winding back to home base way of like, <laughs> you know, like the stain spotting thing is definitely in that vein. Yeah. Well, it's for me, it's also that specifically it's it's a way to remind myself that the sensory input from the whatever's out there gets mediated through the mind and then the media gets projected outward simultaneously so that the world's that I walk through as objective is really an objectified world. And when I look at a stain on the sidewalk and I see a face in there, it reminds me of that and that I can actually mark that with chalk so as to make a mark of my mind upon this world. So as to say like that room with the nanotech, right? It's like to enforce that that's, it's the spell you cast to show that my subjectivity is enmeshed and integrated into the world around me because it's something we forget so easily right and that i guess this might be i might be able to tie this into the elephants the elephant from poland which is my father's yeah i was gonna story. I, I wanted to make sure we got to the psychic experiment yeah so long before alzheimer's kicked in my dad always had like a very intuitive almost clairvoyant side to him. Like there was this instance, for instance, when an instance, for instance, <laughs> when he was uh, driving some from the Netherlands and he was driving for work to Germany or something like that. And as he's driving, he saw this, this screen before his eyes, almost like a movie. And it showed my uh, sister who was very little at the time moving in the yard towards like a big hole. Maybe it was like a pool that was dug out or whatever it was like moving towards this and he was just like, no, no, don't go there. Don't go there kind of thing, right? And he knew there was a restaurant up the road because he had driven this route a bunch of times. So he like pulled over at the next exit, 
jumped out of his car, like left the door open, went inside, asked for a phone, because remember, late 70s, no cell phones, uh, asked for a phone, called my mom, she picked up, and he said, don't ask me anything, do what I tell you, go to the backyard right now, just go now. So she goes, and then she comes back, there's like silence, she comes back to the phone, and she's like, what, 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 how did you know? Because my sister was about to fall into this hole. Oh. <laughs> like th- things like that, you know? And there was like, there was another instance where he was dating this woman who then she had gone on vacation and she had cheated on him and he had seen the whole thing in his mind and was able to relay every detail to her. And then even to the point that like a phone number flashed before his eyes and he dialed it and it was her friend that she had gone with to like reiterate the story. Like things like that, like really bizarre, like poignant transmissions, right? Yeah, yeah. But you could probably look at them as time loops even in some some strange way. They sure seem like time loops to me. Yeah. But go on. So, yeah. so, so there was that priming. And then for a while... When I'd first moved to the U.S., this was like my, I was like 18 or something, um, I would go to this meditation, like every Thursday, my father and I would go to this guided meditation in this like little, you know, like spiritual bookshop or whatever, crystal shop. And um, it was great, just like visual narration as you go through this meditation by this woman that ran this place who was also kind of, you know, had like some psychic air about her. And my dad, he had a good connection with her. And everything, and he was going to go on the funds of my my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor, and after he died, the Maror Fund gave money to the offspring of survivors, and so my father wanted to like invest that in taking my sisters and I to the to go hollow hopping as they call it to go to all the concentration camps and check that out. But he he first went by himself, and when he went, he said, "If you go to the meditation group." This Thursday, I will send a psychic postcard, and then you can tell me what it was. So I go by myself to the meditation group that day, and the woman, she starts off, she's like, my guides have told me that today the theme is going to be elephants. And she's like, there are Asian elephants, and there are African elephants, and she goes into the spiel about elephants, and then she goes through the meditation, and there's like a boat and a river, and there's all these different facets. So later that day, my father calls and he's like, did you go to the meditation? I was like, yeah, I went to meditation. He's like, well, what did you see? And I was like, yeah, it was like a boat and a river and this and that and such and such. I was like, what What was the postcard you sent? Was it a boat? He goes, no, it was an elephant. So it was the elephant from Poland. And that's why now he has elephants all over his apartment. But it's also the memory, the record keeper. Or he's turned into a Republican or something. I don't know. what. It is. Pretty sure it was the other things. You know, just as an aside... First of all, that was awesome. And second of all, it's a strange thing to listen to that, that kind of a story and not be surprised at all and not be like particularly happy about not being surprised, you know, like we're not being like astonished at, you know, just being like, yeah, that is how the world works. Right. You know, okay. It's like, I'm not going to struggle against this. I, mm-hmm. I associate this casual familiarity with this kind of thing, with the nonchalance of witches that are just like, yeah, there's something so grounded and, and practical in the not needing to understand the mechanism yeah. 
you know, and just being like, this is how it works. Well, and this it, is how you can work it. It's funny because there's a part of me that's like the, the skeptic. Like even at that time, I was like, oh, he talked to the woman first and was like, make it about elephants or something like trying to like find. Because, you know, they, parents, they mess you up, man. They'll tell you like Santa Claus and all oh, that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. like oh, yeah. all kinds of things to give you a sense of significance in life. But you know, like just having my own experiences later in life too and, and seeing the kind of like the symbolical seeding of those moments. There's, there's something very interesting there and especially considering that earlier in his life he had these moments of like temporal spatial dilation, you know, like where he would experience something somewhere where he was not or at a different time than where he was, you know. The fact that he that he went through those kind of like dilations and that now his memory is so compromised that, you know, it's it's almost like in a time loop retrocausal kind of sense. It's almost that because of the neurodegeneration that goes on now, that in the past there are these shock waves of, uh, you know, like trans-temporal, trans-spatial transmissions. Does that, does that make sense? What if, what if time travel burns your brain out and like that's but I mean, what, that's just like what, another what way what of if, saying what, what you just right. said maybe. but it's also saying that that the burnout of the brain is what makes the is time travel possible oh it's exactly that's the this time, is, that's the time oh loop shit oh and it, shit and i think this needs to be developed right well it's similar a, it's similar to the the story of loga that i i relayed in the first episode yeah, of self-portraits yeah, yeah. of other people yeah. because she chronicled her dreams for over 30 years and found a continuity of characters that she then figured out correspond to parts of her nervous system, including this trickster deity who corresponds to what she later found out was a pineal tumor, a rare pineal tumor. And so the question became, that we explore on the show kind of, is, is this a tumor or a spiritual growth? Is it the appearance of the tumor that made these psychic experiences happen or where the psychic experiences culminated into this growth this like new sense mm, organ yeah. if you will well i mean and that's where i think you are being irresponsible because just even by asking that question right, because I you're mean, pointing people in the wrong direction if right. you really do think that that these things are bound by some transtemporal ouroboros Transtemporoboros. <laughs> <laughs> I punted it. I punted yeah. it. But yeah. So the Transtemporoboros actually it does sound it's got like a nice, a, it got a good ring to it. Yeah, but it also sounds like it might be like an appetizer. It also, yeah, I was going to say like a deep fried <laughs> s- snake eating its own tail. Yeah. Temporoboros. <laughs> I can't get enough of it. Oh, I want some now. Damn it. It doesn't exist. I am it. But no, but the. <laughs> Any chefs listening to this, please <laughs> dish it up. The official snack of future fossils. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, like, hold on. Well, it's a both and. Is that what you were going for? Yes. It's not that one yes. is causing the so, other from the one whole, side that's or the, the whole other. Point. So it returns you to, I, I feel J.F. Martell over my shoulder when I'm talking about this stuff, because you're just back to the fact that reality is at its base layer built on mere correspondences and mere in this is, you know, perhaps like too dismissive, but like, it's just 
poetry. It's just metaphor at the base layer of reality. Like it's just things resonating with each other, right. even like, you know, preconceptually. There's just like, for whatever fucking reason, UFOs love to land in Provence. And then the little guys come out and they hang, they smell the lavender. <laughs> you know, this is like very well reported. It's a thing that like that, that really? region. Never, I, I always think of like the, uh, the Bill Hicks, like why do they always show up in places like Fife, Alabama? <laughs> <laughs> but I guess there, there's also the ones that, that go well, to the orchards and smell the lavender. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there are, you know, there are reasons it's like, there's a, there's a, the whole, it's, it's associated with the connection between the UFO lore and the fairy lore. And, there are these deeper linkages, you know? Yeah. And that, I mean, the, those things that you just pointed out, like UFO lore, fairy lore, these kind of like mythic cosmic mirror images. Mm. I think of that in, in Wargo's sense as well, where he, he calls upon Donald Kalshed, who also uh, Jason Horsley brought to my attention, who is this psychologist who also lives in Santa Fe, apparently, who specializes in trauma and the psyche. And one of the things is that if you have a trauma in the body that's stored in the body, you know, you can't look at it directly because it's re-traumatizing. So it tries to integrate and resolve itself by distorting itself through dream images and things like that, right? Or in like other strange instances where it becomes kind of like distorted in this cosmic mirror. And similarly, things like a UFO or fairies or like any kind of like twinkling, sparkling, ineffable mystery could very well be like because uh, because wargo brings it up in the time loop sense that we get these precognitive messages but they're warbled or scrambled because we don't know this future yet so we don't know how to recognize it so we adapt it and adopt it as best as we can to what we know so similarly like i mean i'm not the first one to bring this up but the idea of like fairies or ufos that it's like ourselves from the future yeah and they're traveling backwards through time to build the moon i mean they're all fucking obsessed with the moon right like it's that's a that's a fact i mean when i i go into great detail about some of my ufo encounters in aliens and artists Mm -hmm. have you been on that show not yet we've um when i had Stu on my show before he ever launched his first episode he invited me on and we've touched base a few times since then but we've both just been like very yeah busy and scrambled but we'll, we'll get around to it sometime yeah well maybe you'll get some time in for another ufo experience before you yeah yeah <laughs> bring but, it on but you know that was a defining characteristic of the beings i will not call them craft uh, you and i have t- discussed this I, I don't i think the obsession with craft is a complete red herring yeah i was just i was just say i think i said this to you and i tweeted it earlier that day that the idea that the obsession with craft or ufology is kind of like the vehicular fetishization of extraterrestrials. It's like, what are they driving rather than what right. are they driving at? Right. If I'm going to be obsessed with some ridiculous mega franchise, it's going to be Jurassic World and not Fast and Furious. Okay. <laughs> so let me just be clear. I'll take my extraterrestrials naked. Thank you. As they're yeah. flying through the sky. And they were, especially the ones that seemed smaller and i can't explain how because you can't judge the size of anything in the sky really you know not not very well at all unless you know like i've stood next to that plane on the tarmac you know yeah the the small ones were really like seemed like bathing in or basking in the moonlight 
the big mm-hmm. ones seemed to fly lower to the ground and had somewhere to go. They were like on business. It, they didn't seem as vegetative, but there was like a whole layer of like f- plankton that would wow. come and go. And like, you know, like all this whole like invisible ecosystem of stuff was fading in and out for me and my friends all night that night. And it, it would all sort of like show up again at the same time. Like somebody just was like, pressing a fader in the control booth, you know, it's mm. like, so yeah. And you all saw the same thing or were able to cross reference what you yeah, saw. Yeah, totally, totally. And it started in broad daylight and mm. it became night. It started right as the sky was getting pink. And wow. Yeah. That was a special one too, because we really went out there. This was my, my friends, Nathan and Justin and I in September of 2006, I had had a UFO sighting two weeks prior and had asked them if they wanted to come back out with me and see if we could pull a CE5. <laughs> so that was like the first, last, and only time I ever actually did that. Huh. And it, it was a complete success. It was really, I mean, wow. I don't know, after that. I No, I guess there was, no, there was another time. So I've done it twice. And once, did you do the CE5? Yeah, once was the Close next year with my, with my sister cat. But wow. yeah. And you had good results from that. You had well, that. I mean, when you initiate contact and, and like we, yeah, I mean, it's like you just extend a spirit of diplomatic yeah. goodwill. And I mean, and, you can also, you can also view that as kind of like an active imagination. And then again, it, you can, you can who interpret the it knows? as like yeah. a, a fragmentation of, of self that's coming at you. But at any rate, it's a part well, of you beyond you. Right. Because we're it's all, the, we're all seeing it. Right. You know, and it, it was an interesting question to me as far as like, is it possible that I am before you and I started recording, we were talking about the glitch in the matrix movie and how, like, what is it with these people that keep assuming that just because it's a simulation, that it's like a solipsistic simulation in which only you exist. But, you know, to the extent that, you know, people just have different sort of skills and abilities and there's such a thing as emotional contagion. You know, we know that people with what basically amounts to charisma, although it's being increasingly well studied from like a modern quantitative perspective are capable of shaping the memory and even the live experience of other people that sort of submit right. to their placebo, their social placebo effect. Well, it's, a, it's again, it's that the, the eloquence casting the spell of reality and right. offering the reality. So I was it. just coming out of that experience being like, do I just, am I like, projecting a ghost ufo that my friends are just buying into because i've like Whose sold them on a story question, right? yeah yeah like, that i'm thinking of that oh david, david, david lynch like, monica honestly Bellucci i was like that's thing. the absolute worst shittiest possible interpretation of <laughs> what just happened you know like that's the shittiest you know that that's that the Twin Peaks, monica bellucci i had another dream about monica bellucci and <laughs> david lynch is sitting there telling about the dream he's like and she sits down and she asks whose dream is it who's dreaming it or something like that oh yeah well i mean that that it could have been one of your friends that was the uh, the master magician and right. you were the one being uh, right and he could have actually been so powerful that he projected a ufo two weeks prior but i mean that's when you're getting into some like you know we must kill the psychic super child star trek <laughs> episode original series kind of episodes you're like twilight zone you know like bart simpson that's like do anything he wants with his mind right you know well yeah. shit man where do you go from there i don't know <laughs> i mean i think at least in the last 
45 minutes I've done most of the talking, which disappoints me because it's really great to uh, have you here and to net some butterflies together. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. In person, no doubt. No less. I feel like there is a way to wrap this, which would be to ask into the rest of your road trip. You know, like what comes next? Yeah. Well, I'm head- oh my God! Where where goes Wargo? <laughs> Eric Wargo from here? Yeah, where where, where go from here? Um, <laughs> and there's a future, yeah, distorted I mean, future. I'd like to get to Bali and spend a few months there, uh, but it's still it's kind of expensive with the visas and the uh, with the visas and the quarantines <laughs> and <laughs> swapping <laughs> and the nose and the you know all that stuff. Um, but first, I'm going to go back to Arizona for a few weeks. Um, try to figure out this edit see if i actually did catch something or if i'm entirely insane i think i think i'll pull through um and then, yeah it's it's kind of open-ended so i'm just kind of like uh keeping my eyes out for opportunities again because i'm kind of like you know waiting for the end of the world to end <laughs> and in the meantime i'm preparing myself for who i will be when i come back out into the world or what what skill sets I want to have fully streamlined so as to be able to like make a living. And I just, I just put out a little book as you've seen. Yes. Um, I was going to talk about that when we were talking about ink. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. That would have been a good segue. I kept meaning to bring it up, but yeah. Um, it's, it's not really related to much of the things we've talked about except for like the living language, I guess, but it's, uh, it's called the he and the she of it, uh, a multiverse illustration collaboration because it's, revolves around multiple verses that i wrote which are like whimsical (laughs) verses around relationship dynamics and kind of like the the tension of opposites and it's been illustrated by 35 or more artists uh so it's it's kind of a it's a cool little experience i made a little book promo with some music and visuals so you can touch onto them there's only 200 copies out there so it's really my first foray into publishing something so i'm hoping to do more of that also as a way to kind of pave my way through this world using the ink that has stained us all in a way to sustain myself uh, and hopefully entertain and edify all right it is 12 30 oh wow i still gotta drive up that dark mountain to the yeah. middle of nowhere yeah, awesome. good luck. Yeah, <laughs> that's what's ahead on the road. The Lost Highway future. up to Raven's Play. <laughs> well, I might have to play that Bowie song on the way up there. Funny how secrets travel. I start to believe if I were to leave. Thanks again for listening. 